Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm once again joined by Professor Geraldine Dawson. After a fascinating episode covering her groundbreaking work in documenting autism symptoms during infancy last week, I'm looking forward to delving deeper into brain circuitry related to face processing in young children with autism, the world of artificial intelligence, and of course, Geraldine's all-important three wishes for healthcare. So to continue in this theme, you published an article on using digital behavioral phenotyping for the early detection of autism. Tell us more about that, if you would, please. Here at Duke University, we have a program of research that has been conducted over the last several years, and we're currently um, continuing these studies. These are funded by the National Institutes of Health. And the idea is to use uh, the computer to be able to measure these behavioral differences that we know are evident in autism and can be seen even in infants. And some of our studies, in fact, are starting at six months of age and using a computer to detect these differences that we know are there um, in the second half of the first year of life. And uh, these studies are being um, conducted in collaboration with the computer science and engineering team here at Duke. Uh, Guillermo Sapiro is a world-renowned uh, uh, computer vision analysis scientist who has helped uh, develop these techniques. So th the way in which it works is that we have developed an app that parents can download on a smartphone or on a tablet. And the app shows the baby or toddler uh, a series of movies. And these movies are strategically designed to elicit the behaviors that we know are signs of autism. So we're interested in what is the baby paying attention to in the movie? What are the facial expressions that are being um, exhibited while they're watching the movies? These are very brief. It can all be done in less than 10 minutes. Now, the camera in the device is recording the child's response to the movies. And then those videos of the child's behavior are uploaded to the Duke servers. And then the engineering team can automatically code these using a technique called computer vision, which can where the computer tracks every facial movement and every body movement that it sees on the screen. And this technique is extremely powerful because it, it has such high resolution and accuracy. So I'll give you a few examples. So we were able to show that we can monitor where the child is looking. So we can use eye tracking or gaze monitoring, again, using no equipment except for just the, the uh, smartphone. And we can also measure the child's facial expressions and body movements. Now we were able to show that the children who then subsequently were diagnosed with autism looked at the movies in a very different way. They were paying much more attention to the non-social elements of the movies, such as the toys that were being shown, and less attention to the social elements, such as the actresses in the, in the movies. Um, they also showed very different facial expressions. 
And the important thing here is that the computer can pick up on such very subtle differences in facial movements. So some of the biomarkers, so to speak, that would distinguish between a child with a diagnosis of autism versus a, a neurotypical child were just how the eyebrows were being raised or how the mouth was being shaped. So these are subtle movements that it, the human eye cannot detect and not cannot reliably characterize. Um, we also were able to measure orienting to name. And we found that some of the autistic children actually did orient to, the, to their name, but the computer told us that their head turn was one second delayed. Now that's something that the human eye could not detect. And then finally, using this technology, we were able to pick up on novel biomarkers that had really never been characterized in these young infants or used for diagnosis. We discovered that when a toddler with a diagnosis of autism watches these movies, they show these micro movements of their head, very subtle. And the computer can easily measure these and these um, distinguish very effectively between a child uh, who is autistic versus a neurotypical child. So using all of these biomarkers, the computer could detect 23 different separate uh, behaviors that then using artificial intelligence or uh, machine learning, we could combine into an algorithm that could then predict whether this uh, child would have a diagnosis of autism. And it did so with a great degree of accuracy. So we were um, very pleased with that and we're continuing to do those studies. Again, uh, we're seeing whether this works with infants and uh, replicating the work that we've already published. We just had a major paper in Nature Medicine where we reported on all of the sensitivity and specificity data, and people can go to that journal to find out more about that study. Well, I knew that this kind of technology was being used, obviously, by the security services and yes. the, uh, terrorists at <laughs> airports and such like, and also in the early diagnosis of Parkinson's yes. and, and yes. Alzheimer's, I believe. Absolutely. I mean, it really is fascinating. Everyone gets freaked out about cameras looking at us. I, you know, I live in London and there's loads <laughs> of cameras around here and I know, you know, I lived in America half my life and my American friends say, oh, you know, I don't want, I don't want to be spied on. It's like, well, if I'm not doing anything wrong, I really don't give a damn about it. And if this can now be used to say, hey, by the way, uh, dude, you've got such and such a disease beginning to declare itself. I think it's amazing. So good on you. So <laughs> let's, let's go with an, another aspect of, um, uh, high tech. You, you, your research on uh, early autism detection models based on electronic health record data collected before the age of one year. What, what were some of your findings there? Well, in this study, I'm collaborating with data scientists here at Duke. So um, Ben Goldstein and Matt Englehart are both uh, bioinformaticians and biostatisticians who specialize in the use of electronic health records to predict uh, a variety of health conditions. And this is a major area of research in the field of medicine. So not just autism, but we can mine the information in electronic health records to predict 
who will respond to certain medications, who will be likely to come back to the hospital after a surgery, um, who might be at risk for suicide. So this is a this is an area of research that's very active uh, currently. And the question that we asked is whether there's enough information in a child's electronic health record before age one to be able to predict whether that infant will go on to have a diagnosis of autism or ADHD or not have a neurodevelopmental uh, condition. And the first study that we published, we simply looked at the patterns of healthcare utilization for infants who then later had a diagnosis of autism versus ADHD versus children with other health conditions. And we found that there was a really robust difference in the patterns of healthcare utilization. So for example, we found that before age one, a baby who will later have a diagnosis of autism is much more likely to see a gastroenterologist, to see a neurologist, which is maybe not too surprising, but an ophthalmologist. Um, and these patterns of healthcare um, could then be combined, again, using machine learning to, to develop an algorithm that could predict with a fairly high degree of accuracy whether this child had a higher likelihood of, of autism. And the children that had a diagnosis of ADHD had a different pattern. So for example, a baby who will go on to have a diagnosis of ADHD is much more likely to be visiting the emergency department by age one. And so you imagine, you know, we know that ADHD is associated with higher rates of accidents because of, you know, impulsivity and, and things like this. We can see this even in the infant period. So we're now, um, again, uh, studies being conducted and funded by uh, the National Institute of Health. We're now uh, following up on this and replicating it and also using much larger data sets. So we're working with some of the insurance uh, company data sets to make sure that we're, we have a very diverse population that we're working with and we're working on developing these algorithms. And the idea is that, so imagine you're a pediatrician and you have, an, say, a 12-month-old or an 18-month-old that's coming in for a well-child visit. And behind the scenes, the computer, again, has collected all of the information about that patient that hopefully, in this case, had been you know, seen at Duke for you know, it, since birth. And then before that, that baby comes in for their well-child visit, something pops up on the screen that says, based on this baby's healthcare record, the, the child may be at higher likelihood of a diagnosis of autism or some other neurodevelopmental condition. Now, that means that that pediatrician is going to be much more vigilant making sure that they're doing all of the screening they should be doing, following up with the parent. But they'd also be highlighting these medical conditions, such as GI conditions and neurological conditions, um, and making sure that we're paying attention to those. So I think this is important because often we think of autism as a behavioral health condition, which it is, 
but it's also a medical condition um, because we know that there are many medical uh, conditions that are associated with autism, such as GI and sleep uh, sleep problems, uh, these ophthalmological problems. And often these are overlooked or can even help explain some of the behavioral challenges that we see. For example, if a child is having a GI problem, they're likely in pain and they may be having tantrums. This can be misattributed to the autism when in fact it is a medical condition that needs attention. It's interesting. A common theme that seems to be, um, seems to flow throughout your work is looking at uh, this situation through a very different optic, which in some ways has um, a, a virtuous irony to it, that you're, you're studying a condition where, you know, the human brain is behaving very differently and you're using a very different set of approaches to diagnose it. I think it's, it, it's delicious. Well, to continue with that vein, your current work involves the application of artificial intelligence, you know, the buzzword, and computer vision for early autism detection. Can you tell us a bit more about that and those tools and how that works? Well, this is very much the work that I was describing a moment ago where it involves digital phenotyping. And I think that, you know, in this case, the artificial intelligence is being able to combine all of this data into a single algorithm. And that requires machine learning. And one one of the wonderful things about machine learning is that when you think about the complexity of autism, and I mentioned that we can derive 23 different digital phenotypes, um, these the algorithm can weight those by their predictive value and create a, a much more accurate algorithm that way than if you imagine a diagnostician, they're, they're looking at several behaviors too, but they probably are not mathematically weighting those differently in their brain. They just don't have the capability. So I do believe that computers hold a great deal of promise and this whole new era of, of uh, artificial intelligence uh, and its application to medicine in general um, just is going to transform medicine in, in a good way. Obviously, there are many factors that need to be considered, and particularly we want to make sure that there are not inherent biases in these approaches that would discriminate against individuals. But uh, on, the, on the whole, I think we're looking at a very exciting period of science uh, with the application of artificial intelligence. So, um, and that makes perfect sense, of course. Your works identified differences in brain circuitry related to face processing in young children with autism, and you've referenced that in how children uh, with autism react to visual images in, in the movies. Uh, but here, you, you utilizing electrophysiological techniques. Uh, what are some of those, and what's the significance of that and its implications for interventions? The work that we did early on where we were able to use event-related brain potentials to study how the brain responds when it sees social information such as a face has now developed into a large-scale 
uh, multi-site collaboration that is validating these brain-based biomarkers for use in clinical trials. And I should point out that a similar effort is going on um, in Europe. Um, this is called the uh, EU AIMS uh, project that is um, being conducted by multiple universities across Europe where, and then again, our, our team uh, at, in the United States. And what we're trying to do is to see whether some of these measures of how the brain responds to social information can be used to better identify those individuals that might respond to certain kinds of treatments versus others. One of the, the biggest challenges in developing therapeutics for autism, whether we're talking about behavioral therapies or pharmacological therapies, is that autism is not one condition. It's very heterogeneous, as we've talked about before. But we don't have any biomarkers that allow us to identify subtypes that might respond to one intervention or the other. And we also don't have quantitative measures that could tell us whether a treatment is working. So when you think, for example, about heart disease, we have many of these biomarkers that can identify whether a person has heart disease, but also whether they're responding to a treatment. And these are called biomarkers. So in heart disease, these are things like your levels of cholesterol, your blood pressure, you know, many, many different biological quantitative markers that a doctor would use to be able to know whether a treatment is working. But we don't have those in psychiatry and autism. So the idea is that perhaps these measures of how the brain response could be a biomarker that could be used to first identify people who would respond to a treatment, but also track whether that treatment is used, you know, having an effect over time. And so currently in the United States, there is what's called the biomarkers, uh, the Autism Biomarkers Consortium for Clinical Trials or the ABCCT. It is a $60 million uh, effort funded by the NIH. It's headed up by uh, James McPartland at Yale University, who, by the way, was my graduate student at the University of Washington when we conducted those early studies where we looked at uh, using uh, these brain measures to measure responses to social information. So he's now a uh, endowed professor at Yale University, and we laugh because now he's my boss because Duke is a site in this trial, and uh, which is fun to have one of your graduate students now be heading up a consortium that that uh, you know you're you're now one of the many sites among of that are in this consortium. But anyway, the goal of this is to see whether we can. Uh, validate these biomarkers for the use um, in in clinical trials. And as I mentioned, there's a similar effort that is going on in Europe, actually uh, measuring these same brain-based biomarkers. And we're very hopeful that this will move the field forward in terms of our ability to develop more effective um, interventions and to track whether they're working and, and which ones work for which people. Um, that would be a major major step forward in the field of autism. 
I have to say that probably one of the greatest rewards of being involved in, in a career in medicine is seeing people you've mentored go on to become colleagues and peers. And in, in my case, you know, teach me stuff going forward. So yeah, that must be a lovely experience. Um, sadly, we're coming to the last question because I've actually got loads more for you. But if a genie were to grant you three wishes to advance healthcare in your field or in any field, frankly, what would those wishes be? My first wish is to eliminate the major disparities in access to healthcare. As you're well aware, there are people who can immediately access a, a diagnosis in the case of autism and get access to early intervention. And I've talked about the profound impact that this can have on the trajectory of development. Uh, but not just in autism, but other fields, we see these major disparities. And in most places throughout the world, Certainly, there is not access to an autism diagnosis or early intervention, but there's also little access to other forms of healthcare, medications, and vaccines, and so forth. So, if I were a genie, I would love to level the playing field because I do feel that adequate healthcare is a human right. Second, my second wish is for greater investment and for ongoing success in the area of science as it's applied to healthcare. We are on the verge of, I think, is going to be the most exciting period in history for a long time anyway, um, in terms of the application of so many new technologies, whether it's artificial intelligence or CRISPR, gene editing, so many new technologies. So we need to invest in these so that we can bring to fruition the abilities that we have in the area of science and develop new uh, treatments, new methods for early detection um, across all fields of medicine. And then my final wish is one that we could change right now. It doesn't require you know, huge investments, huge breakthroughs in science, but it, it requires a change in attitude. And that's for us to accept and appreciate the neurodiversity that exists across humankind. So much of suffering in the area of autism comes from people being discriminated against, uh, being not being accepted because they're different in the way that they perceive things or behave. And by offering acceptance and even celebration of the various ways in which the human mind can be manifest and appreciate how important that is to all of us to have that neurodiversity and what we can learn from it. Um, that is something that I would love to see and something that wouldn't cost a single cent. You are um, an utter inspiration, Jerry. I just seriously would like to ask you to set aside your, your hobbies and focus more on the work because you seem to have done more 
in your one lifetime than many people you know multiple people would do in multiple lifetimes you're, you're you're a real inspiration and a joy to listen to but i'm afraid that's all we've got time today um so thanks for being with us professor geraldine dawson and i hope you can come back again and tell us more well thank you for the opportunity So, folks, uh, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Like us on social media. Check out the archives and think about what the good professor has said and and think about the way that we view other people in the world um, and the good that we can as healthcare professionals and as human beings. uh, We can do a lot of good in the world. So until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thanks for listening to the EMJ podcast. And in the interim, please stay safe. Stay well, stay curious, but above all, be kind. Bye for now.